netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. In this episode, Mike Seymour is speaking with Rob Coleman, who recently joined ILM Sydney as an animation supervisor. I should say actually rejoined because, of course, he spent time there from 1993 to 2005 in San Francisco. And actually, he and Mike um, discussed probably one of the more famous sequences that he worked on, which is the Yoda lightsaber fight sequence in Episode 2 of Star Wars. After his time at LM, he spent two years at Lucasfilm and then headed down under to work on the animated feature Happy Feet 2. After that, he joined Animal Logic and spent nine years there as the head of animation, working on the Lego series of films as well as Peter Rabbit. And now he's back at ILM in Sydney uh, to work in a variety of roles. But the podcast today isn't really about his new role per se at ILM, but I think centers more on discussion of changes in the animated uh, feature industry and animation in general. You know, I think things are interesting, like the having virtual cameras in animated features, more mimicking real-world camera approaches and physics, as well as involving DOPs in the craft. I think it's um, undeniably improved the cinematography and animated features over the years, uh, as well as how other changes in technology, things such as virtual production and even how COVID has changed some of the way things are done in animated feature pipelines. So... Uh, let's go ahead and cross that conversation now. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's Mike Seymour chatting with Rob Coleman. So, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Great to talk to you again, my friend. Great to talk to you. So I was really interested in your views on where we are in terms of animation. Obviously, you've seen all sides of that kind of equation. In particular, obviously, there's, well, I guess my question is, should start with this. How different is the job of the animator these days? that's doing a character in a fully animated feature film, like a Lego type film or a VFX character that's sitting in a, you know, classic kind of uh, VFX environment as you've done in Star Wars films and other things. Yeah, I think, I think the difference is always of whether you're, you're combining animation with live action. And if you're, and if you are, you have to be sensitive and aware of the physics of that world. So a lot of the time we're asked to do the extraordinary, but if we do it too wild, it won't necessarily feel like it's sitting in the same world as the live action. And, and a film like, say, the Peter Rabbit films we did, um, we had our rabbits, which I ended up calling sort of stylized realism. The director had asked us to create realistic rabbits, but the reality is they walk on their back two feet and they talk and they you know gesture with their hands. And so it becomes a stylized realism, but we had to be uh, true to the, the weight of the rabbits, the size of the rabbits, how far could they jump, things like that. If you're in a fully animated world, you can invent that or the director can invent that and say, okay, well, this is these are the rules of this world. And so like in a Lego movie, as you said, or Lego Batman, you, you sort of create and define in the first minutes of the movie to the audience, this is what our animation looks like. And if you've done a good job, they engage with the characters and they're along for the ride. But once they've engaged in the reality that is the amount of agency that Peter Rabbit can have, for example, right? Um, yeah. That then has to remain consistent. So just following your own logic for a second, once I'm in, I'm kind of doing the same thing, aren't I? Whether those gravity laws are slightly less restrictive than the real world, if they need to be consistent, they need to be consistent. They do. I mean, they do in that you're, you know, 
we're always trying to breathe life into any animated character. We're trying to engage with the audience to a point where they believe that they're watching a, a thinking, emoting creature. Now, whether that it's a Lego face or it's a, a furry little animal or some kind of alien in Star Wars, that's always our first port of call. What I found is that on the films that I've been able to supervise, there's a there's a development phase at the beginning, both with the director and with the internal team, where we are learning that style of animation. So there's different styles and approaches. So Lego, I ended up referring to it as faux stop motion. We wanted it to feel like it was done with real Lego bricks, when in fact it was all done with digital bricks. But we were sensitive to well, what do real brick films look like, and how do we emulate that in a in a digital environment? For a live action or visual effects movie, we're saying, okay, what is the interaction between these human beings and these animated characters? And what can I do and what can I not do? Or, or when do I break the, the, real, the realism of that moment? Um, so to try and answer your question, yeah, I guess there's a certain amount of these are the rules and regulations for this type of animation, then you kind of go with it. But pretty well on every film there's a director who says no he's got to go higher it's like well he wouldn't actually be able to do that i don't care i need it for this moment it's going to be funny he needs more hang time or whatever it is yeah are there differences in those animators like is there a sense that a animator that tends to work in vfx is a little more like a sprinter and your animator in an animated full-length feature tends to be a bit more like a marathon runner or am i just imagining that no, it's, a, it's an analogy I hadn't thought about. Certainly, you know, the sprinter analogy, if you're on television animation, you're a sprinter in my mind. And the reason I say that is because for any film that I'm, I'm a project I'm bidding on, we're looking at, at some level, we're looking at how many seconds of finished animation can any animator do in a given week. So to give ex real examples, uh, on the Lego style movies, we were able to achieve six seconds per animator per week as an average. Uh, and that that relates to the complexity of the animation and the time it took to do any you know seconds of work. Peter Rabbit, by comparison, was more in the range of three and a half seconds per animator. And one of the reasons it was it took it took longer, uh, or the animators traveling more slowly, is because the uh, attention to detail, uh, overlapping action, compression, uh, engagement in the face facial performances, which are much more detailed when compared to Lego. Um, so the, the sprinter and marathon runner, marathon runner, certainly if you're on an animated feature, that analogy works because those projects tend to be a year or longer in production life length. So you're on the show for a long, long time. I know some animators prefer to be in commercials because they're on a show or on a, on a, on a commercial from two weeks to six weeks, and then they're on to the next thing, and they're on to the next thing. So that, to me, in my in my mind, that's a sprinter. Um, but features you're on, you can be on for months and months and months uh, at a time. I'm going to just bring up one point, and, and I apologize because I know this is almost at the level of uh, VFX fanboy. But as you know, one of the things that you once animated that I think is just like a moment of cinematic genius is Yoda's lightsaber fight. Yeah. And the reason I bring that up is it runs exactly in the opposite direction of what I was just discussing, because up until that point, the rules of Yoda had been extremely well established. Um, and in a physical 
manifestation as well as of course in a digital one and suddenly you had the uh tasmanian devil you know <laughs> but but here's the thing no no but but i mean this as a super compliment right because it totally worked mm. i mean the audience i was with cheered when that lightsaber left uh, his waist and went to his hand in a way that just is like there aren't many of those moments in life but that was one of them that's a that's an interesting occasion where you're really fully at the length of what an animated uh i mean direction might be which is hey i need this guy to move fast and ways and break physics in a very live action vfx film yeah well thank you for all that uh the history of that is that when i started to talk to george lucas about that sequence he started off by saying, I've always wanted to see Yoda fight, and so have the fans. You know, we got to meet him in Empire um, as this beautifully performed puppet by um, Frank Oz. But in George's mind, I gather back then, he'd always imagined the day when he would get to see Yoda jump and fight and leap and, and everything. The prep for that sequence was actually probably in the neighborhood of six months. I was terrified of that sequence because of um the real reality i felt of you know failing um or creating something that the audience just couldn't connect with so my process was to talk to a number of people including um the stunt the main stunt uh supervisor on the live action shoot how do jedi fight how do they move um actually ahmed best who who played jar jar Binks was, uh, is a martial artist himself. And so, you know, Ahmed and I become friends over the films and he actually shared a whole bunch of his favorite anime uh, with me. Uh, and we looked at that and studied that because I was sort of sharing with him my concerns. And then there were martial arts films that I looked at, um, certainly Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, and then there was a film, a Jet Li film, um, Swordsman 2. And in that movie, there's a sequence at nighttime in the forest, and the uh, these ninjas are leaping from tree to tree. And it was that moment, actually getting goosebumps thinking about it. It was seeing that, that movie, I suddenly had this moment of clarity, and I was like, okay, I've now, I now have an idea of how Yoda can move, because he's tiny compared to Christopher Lee, Count Dooku. But seeing these ninjas dancing from, or bouncing from tree to tree to tree, and George had, it's funny you said Tasmanian devil, because George had actually said that to me. He'd said, no, nah, he's, he's a Tasmanian devil. He's got to be, you know, he spins and he moves around. He's super fast, even though he's, whatever, 900 years old. Um, so that was all part of that six months of, uh, of prep. And then I had amazingly talented animator, Tim Harrington, who was working with me closely on, on the development shots. In fact, he animated the shot of the lightsaber going into the hand. That was his idea. Because George had said, I want him to come out, and it's like a, one of the old westerns in the OK Corral, and yep. you've got the guys very the of the street. It's yep. very much throw the duster back and pull out the lightsaber, so uh, or the you know the pistol in the in the western films. My recollection now, and it has been some years, is that after the six months of prep, we actually animated that sequence in just a couple of weeks because we we planned it out. We knew what we wanted to do. We figured um, out how. Yoda was going to move, and it came together pretty quickly um, once we did that. And but even still, I was really nervous before I got to see that sequence with a real audience. Yeah, I mean it's great. Um, there's something else. Well, actually, I'm um, quick digression. Did you get a smile on your because you weren't at ILM when uh, when 
what what is affectionately called Baby Yoda first appeared in the Mandalorian. <laughs> yes, uh, um, that must have brought a smile to your face when you saw that, or I, I presume you saw it like the rest of us. And uh, oh yeah, smile. Yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't know it was coming, and yeah. and yeah, I was beaming. You know, yeah. that's that, that was the great thing about Mandalorian is that I had nothing to do with that show. Didn't know anything about it. I know a lot of people worked on it, but. Oh, seeing seeing little baby Yoda, seeing Slave One, uh, Boba Fett's ship, yeah, all that stuff was like, yeah, I was I was transported back to being, you know. 13. Well, I didn't mean it so much from a fan point of view, but I mean it's a really interesting character study, isn't it? Taking oh, this yeah. character yeah. as a child for an animator, because uh, you need to have um, almost reflections of a personality of a different character, of course, but a personality of a an older character in a younger one um we need to believe that they are obviously linked um and yet you know like it's such a different uh age i mean ridiculously so in in star wars years exactly. uh, but yeah an interesting challenge for for uh, realizing something so but what i want to say though is that um the 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 environment that you did that in um because it's the other thing that i've always sort of thought with character animators that's really terrific is the acting um, and I mean that to the credit of the animator. And of course, if you're an actor, what you want to do is have a backstory and the backstory sort of informs so many of those ideas. And yet to a real certain extent, that backstory didn't exist on, on Yoda, but generally speaking, right, that's what we're going for. You're going for that consistent, not just like a personality, but like from a culture so that they would culturally respond as much as personality respond in a way that's consistent. That's that acting side, I think, is one of the best things that character animators do. But I mean, I, I know I'm telling you how. To no, I, I, I absolutely agree, and 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 I can confirm that a lot of my initial discussions with George about George Lucas about any character I was working with him on uh, was backstory. Where's Where's Dexter Jetster been? He's in this diner in, in Coruscant. What, where was he before? We, some of that comes out in the dialogue that he has with Obi Wan, but. We literally talked about he's got a sore leg because I'd seen the voice actor on the day, a guy named Ronald Falk, who we had here in Sydney uh, doing the voice. He happened to have a bad leg. I think he had a sciatic problem or something. And I was watching him because he got to rehearse with uh, with Ewan, uh, the scene. And I loved that physicality. So I turned to George and I said, can we do that in the character? He went, oh, yeah, definitely. Because it just gives richness, subtext history to those characters. I think that's vital. Uh, and I would also talk about to him and, and to and other directors I've worked with on animated characters, um, you know, are there live action actors that they are inspired by or were thinking about when they cast this character? Then I'll go and watch those movies. I did that on uh, Dragonheart. You know, yes, we had Sean Connery's voice, but I went back and studied him in the old Bond films and the hunt for Red October and everything and tried to pick up on his mannerisms and facial movement and then put that into the dragon. Uh, Dragonheart was a magnificent movie, way ahead of its time. That was Scott Squires, wasn't it? Must have been a Scott Yeah, he was a visual effects supervisor. It's the 25th anniversary, actually, of that, that film. That is just such a great film. Um, I mean, it's so many levels, right? But like the level of uh, expression. I wanted to, though, you touched just a second there on subtext. I want to go back to that because I think that's where that backstory slash acting is most interesting when you're allowed inside the confines of what the director wants to be on the shot of the character listening, not yeah. the shot of the character talking. Do you want to yeah. discuss that? Yes, yes. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, 
we're all used to this in anything we watch, movies, television, people. Um, editors will always cut to an actor's reaction to what another character is saying or doing, and we, the audience, pick up on all kinds of things. Do we? Does this character believe in what they're hearing? Are they totally taken in by what they hear? Are they not engaged at all? And I felt strongly early on that we wouldn't have reached our true potential until George Lucas and his editors felt confident to cut to Yoda or any other digital character for the honor of seeing their reaction. And we did earn that on The Phantom Menace. And to do that, uh, it's funny, I'm now just remembering the whole process. I had animators who just wanted dialogue shots. And I was tr kept trying to tell them that some of the most important shots are the nonverbal acting shots. And in fact, when we pitched the idea of doing a digital Yoda for the second of the prequels, uh, I went back with Hal Hickel and Linda Bell and others uh, and looked at Empire Strikes Back and we picked three dialogue shots and three non-talking shots of, of Yoda in that film because George did cut to the puppet in that film. And we matched those and, and got inspired by those. And we, I think we earned it and we were, we were allowed to do the digital character because we proved to George we could do the non-verbal the non shots. No crutch of dialogue. Dialogue, you're talking with your hands, your face, and, and it, you know, it's, 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 I think it's easier than the keeping a character, a digital character, alive uh, and engaged and have the audience really leaning in and, you know, what do they think of, what does this character I'm watching think about this? Um, so subtext is part of that. So for people who don't know what subtext is, we have the text, which is in the, in the script, the description, and also the dialogue. And then the subtext is what's the underlying, what's really happening, or what, what, what are you picking up as a human being between the energy of these two actors, if it's a two-hander scene, when one's saying one thing that the other doesn't believe? How do we know that the one who doesn't say, I don't believe you, they just, it's just in their face, they don't believe them? And we, yeah, you, can, you know, you can have those scenes where almost every part of the dialogue is almost at the point of being irrelevant, or in fact, contrary to what the subtext is. Oh yeah, oh um, yeah. But but let me ask you about that though, because that when becomes the kind of real pinnacle of this, when you can animate a digital character, and I wonder if you've got any other references you could refer to, a digital character who's saying X but clearly means Y, like they're yeah. saying blue and they mean red, and we yeah. get that because that's. That's really crafting the the character animation. Yeah, I think I think you know, without being able to call shots right off the top of my head, there were certainly many scenes just because of the character of Peter Rabbit. He was not always being completely truthful or forthcoming with what he was thinking or doing or planning. And James Corden, who's a very uh, you know broad, effusive actor, was playing the part where Peter be believed or almost completely believed in what he was saying. And we used his cousin Benjamin Rabbit to be our foil of like, well, actually, Peter, that we shouldn't be doing that, or I don't think that's really real, or that didn't go that way. Um, so we did have that, and that was all in the script. You know, Will Gluck had written this great script between these, you know, various characters, um, and I think that's where the I think the actors enjoyed doing those kind of performances and certainly, you know, the most gifted animators I've worked with really relish the opportunity to do says one thing, but means another. Um, those, those are the great scenes, I think. Yeah, they really are marvelous. 
Um, can I switch gears for one second and just discuss lighting? Because uh, we discussed this about character animation between the character doing one thing and, of course, um, the character doing another thing in a world that's completely CG. But one other huge variable in those two things is the lighting. Like you can, you have to basically work your character into the live action lighting or it's going to pop and seem out yeah. of place. Yeah. Where, of course, you can much more easily manipulate the digital lighting of a fully animated feature. And I'm wondering, because I'm, I'm going to go somewhere with this, but I'm wondering uh, how much you've seen a transition there in the animator being aware of and playing with that lighting because the technology now is much more able to give that animator a more realistic animation environment upon which to do his work or her work um, compared to the earlier days when it was sort of like, God forbid, grayscale kind of. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's still, it, we're, I think it's still evolving. I mean, the the, uh, the viewport renders are better and better every year and the speed of the graphic carts and the, and the, and the ability to see things like, you know, fur and refraction and eyeballs. Certainly, um, if you're able to see that as an animator and, and make judgments on say eye lines and uh, where's the light hitting my character and do I want the character leaning into the light or pulling away, that was never possible, you know, even a few years ago. So you kind of saw it at the end of the, of the process. As an anim stoop, I'm always, um, I have a very tight relationship working with the visual effects supervisor on the show or the lighting supervisor on the show and, 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 and you know, can be the creative director, art director as well. And so there's a collective looking at, you know, how do we want to use light and shadow to help tell the story? And that may come from the director themselves or it may just come from the creative team I'm working with. Um, so it is something that we now think more about and the, and the, the renders are just astounding to me. You know, as someone who's not, specialty isn't in lighting. Um, I've seen lighting where the characters just come to life even more because they truly look like they're, they're in the scene and they are with the, the human being or they're in a fully CG environment that looks like you could reach in and touch it all. That's incredibly, um, I don't know, rewarding to see our work played in the- I mean, I remember night. Dennis Murin discussing putting the eye light on the uh, raptors in, in uh, Jurassic. And up until that point, they didn't seem intelligent. And ah. he went, well, in real life, we'd put eye lights and let's put eye lights. And they put those pings in the, in the eyes and yep. boom. But I mean, the trouble is, if you're the animator trying to make the raptor look intelligent and you don't have, obviously we're going back to that point in time, don't have that ability to put an eye light in a, uh, then it's very hard. You kind of operate. I mean. Well, I can actually tell you. So we didn't have eye lights on Peter Rabbit, the first Peter Rabbit in our animation renders. We couldn't get that glassy look in our animation renders. And we had exactly that same problem. So I just asked for a temporary solution, which was an opaque white circle sitting uh, uh, that we could then position into the corners of the eyes in the animation renders that would be thrown away later and the real ping would be added in you know when they did it for real and really rendered it and we had exactly the same reaction the director said oh, these characters aren't alive we put that white opaque ping uh just as slapped it onto the top of our eye and it worked it worked beautifully he's like ah there they're alive it's like yep and so we we then put that onto every show after that, and it's worked the charm. So what about like a, a happy feet level fur um, character versus what must have been in in the latest Peter Rabbit, right? Like there's got to be a big difference there with with just the not just the fur as a look or the texture on the animal, but 
the fact is they change their actual volume, right? Like, I mean, you stick a, an inch of fur on a character or stick a fluffy tail on, it's quite different than the underlying geometry. Oh, absolutely. So we had a really hard time. I was the uh, animation director on Happy Feet 2. And for the little fuzzy kid penguins, we just had a, a representative volume, uh, opaque. It had some texture on it. But the problem was, was that around the face, you really couldn't get a truthful read on the expression and say smiling or frowning or the eye shapes until we saw it with their fur. And that was too far down the run. So there was a certain amount of a, a being, meaning I would take some animation that I really liked and we were seeing it as the animation render. I would then ask the, the lighting and compositing group to create uh, a render of that. And then uh, using RV, I would then show George Miller, the director by sliding it back and forth going, a, which is the animation render, and it looks like this, and it's kind of clunky, slide equals B. And then once he and I sort of realized and we could both calm down a bit, we understood, started to learn the language of, yeah, well, this eye corner will end up being like this eye corner when we see it fully rendered. We had the same thing on the first Peter Rabbit. We didn't have the ability to see the fur quickly. Um, and so there was a certain amount of A being as well for Will Gluck, the director on that film. Um, and once we learned it, there was a little bit more of us both sort of, you know, feeling comfortable about the expressions we were seeing. Because prior to that, we were pushing the expressions too much because we weren't reading them in the animation render. And what, by the time they got their fur on, they were way over the top. Let me change tax for a second and discuss a trend that I noticed. So like back in, you know, if you go back a few years, there was this big thing. It was always like, oh, did that use mocap or was that an animator, right? As if yeah. like this was some magical thing. Yeah. Um, and and I think more often than not, these were questions that were asked simply because people had heard other people ask these questions and it seemed like a thing to ask. But, you know, obviously it died down after a while and people came to appreciate that, yeah, just putting someone in a mocap suit doesn't provide everything. No. Um, I wonder though, if I could look now, because if you transition from that as a principle, we sort of similar kind of thing happening with simulation, because mm -hmm. now we get, you know, like you much mentioned follow through or secondary animation, which of course you can actually simulate with a, you know, rig that models physics. And then if we go even further, there's new talk today from various people about, well, can we have deep learning and can we use machine learning um, to do some of the things. And I'm wondering what your opinion, do you, do you feel like that is a fair comparison of those three things or are they very different from that point I, of view? I, I see it as an evolution, actually. I think we're always in, in our world where we're looking at what are the tools available to us right now? What's the, what does the director want in terms of the style of motion? Some films are very, very, um, you know, they need something like a, a motion capture because the director's looking for the aesthetic of, of and, the, and the tiny details you get from putting a person in a suit and capturing their motion. And then you can augment that with keyframe animation on top of it or, you know. Um, and other shows, the directors are saying, no, 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 I want something that's um, that doesn't look like a human being walking around. I want it to be completely different. As it relates to your question about the simulations, we, even going way, way back in my career, we sort of, I looked at it in three ways. There was there's animation, there was automation, and then there was simulation. So automation, for example, so I animate an arm. An automation could look at a joint angle and say, oh, I'm gonna flex the bicep based on a joint angle of the elbow. Yep. So the animator isn't having to do a, a slider on the shape. That happens automatically or automated. 
And then if we say, okay, well, on top of that is a t-shirt and the t-shirt is gonna be simulated based on the volume that's changing on the biceps. Um, we have been using that for well, 20 plus years, probably, you know? Um, in terms of machine learning, yeah, you just have to give every angle and every version of it is my understanding to the computer to understand, you know, a human being has gone, said, gone through and said, these all look right to me. Machine ingests all that, looks at all the joint angles and all the positions and all the shapes. And then it can make a prediction, a very educated prediction if you give it enough samples so that you don't have to actually run a simulation. It actually just puts the place, the, you know, the bits in the right place based on previous knowledge is my, I haven't used a lot of machine learning yet. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is obviously a sort of a cutting edge thing. But I mean, we sort of saw a transition between those two when we saw crowd simulations, because mm. what we were effectively doing is sampling animation from mocap, uh, yes. but simulating the crowd so that you wouldn't have to have animators there until they, they grew old and yes. <laughs> uh, doing, you know, 10,000 guys running at 10,000 uh, other guys with swords, um, normally guys. Um, and uh, yeah, but there are, there are interesting aspects, I think. I mean, one of the ones that I heard of recently, and again, this is just R&D, uh, is putting for an animator, the uh like using neural rendering effectively so we're not we're not uh, doing a traditional uh, render at the end of the actor's face or the character's face onto effectively the play blast so you go oh okay well this isn't going to be final but we know that it looks like this and so we the computer has learned that you know a final render would look like this and so it infers that final render because obviously as you know but for those listening, you know, it's going to be very fast at, at that moment, very slow to learn, of course, but once, yeah. you know, so it gives the animator like an extra window, I guess, like a preview look mm. um, in. So there's like quite a lot of interesting stuff happening in that space. Um, but as you say, it's evolving, right? Yeah. And it always is. And that's part of the, what I love about being in this, in this world is that, you know, there's so many smart people out there creating these these new technologies and this new approaches or potential new approaches that you know um people like me have to keep continually you know learn about this stuff and say well how does that how could that potentially fit into my workflow one of the things that i'm interested in with um if i keep going in that kind of tech thing for a second it, obviously we bump into it very quickly virtual production right it's a yeah. similar kind of um uh space right now and what i love about virtual production isn't that you know the Mandalorian has a set that looks like a, a snowfield behind Mando. It's that these real-time technology, deep learning, machine learning technology, like a bunch of these things, are accelerating uh, the responsiveness that we can get in terms of generating our imagery. And I guess as an overarching thing, um, I'm wondering how we can get to sort of take advantage of that to make sure the animators are more collaboratively in the process. Because, you know, these things we're talking about lighting. I mean, you want to be, you know, obviously the DOP to be completely uh, yeah. close to that. And you can't do that if it takes, you know, months before anything happens because the DOP's moved on to the next movie. That's true. Have timelines altered for you or is it still that problem that it gets better and the timeline stays the same because the complexity goes up? <laughs> I think it's that. I mean, it, there's always a joke that, you, you know, you've, you've, You've always got the same amount of time to do a project, but the images that you're doing are even are more sophisticated, or the animation is more detailed. Um, you know, we always sort of seem to have you've got five days to do a shot. Can you do three seconds of work? Can you do six seconds of work? Can you do fifteen seconds of work? And what's the quality of that work? Um, um, 
Yeah. Well, I guess that poses the question then. So I'm talking about this from the tech, but from the human point of view, is the limiting factor on these getting the performance or just visualizing it with the computer? Because if the animator just needs that time, you know, I mean, like if 10% of their time is spent on the tech and 90% on the performance, then ah. if the tech gets three times faster, you've only saved a, a few minutes, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think I think I know where you're going with this. Um, animator workflow is incredibly important for me. And, and I want uh, to be in an environment where the animator can focus the maximum amount of their time on the on the acting and the performance or the physicality of a creature in a show. If the technology, which it was at the beginning of my career, uh, you know, a, a hindrance for your creative flow, you're not going to be able to get the best work up on the screen. So over the decades that I've been working, computers have got faster, software has become more sophisticated, the UI has become cleaner, and the tools that we've had at our disposal as animators have gotten better and better. I think we're getting to a place now where um, I'm happy to say that the majority of my animators are able to focus a huge amount of their time just on the acting or just on the performance, and therefore their ability to create iterations, uh, more iterations per week where they can figure for themselves or for their supervisor, is this what we want? Is this what we want? We've got like real-time playback now where I can see something in a very high resolution and I don't have to run a play blast. I don't have to wait for an off-board farm renderer. I can see it right on my screen. And be, and as an animator myself, going way back, I was someone, I didn't have the golden light touch me and go, he's, a, he's one of the world's greatest animators. I had to work really hard at my animation. Um, and so I benefited from more, from more iterations per week. So seeing the young animators now who are able to do lots of versions and try different things all within the same finite five days, I think it's made the, the work get better and better and better. So technology has helped us absolutely across the board um, because of that, that just realism or that truth about being a creative person and trying to create uh, a performance. Yeah, yeah. I think you have to be more prescriptive when you've got only a few shots at it. Um, and so the the no, I mean, I'm I'm guessing the second hand, of course, you, you'd know, but it just feels to me like if I'm if I'm only going to get three goes at this, I better not be too experimental on the first yeah. couple because I'm going to sink yeah. myself. Yeah, yeah. So we mentioned Dragonheart earlier. I was an animator and then a supervising animator on that show. Yeah, that was absolutely the dragon was so slow to move around. You really you had to pre-plan, talk to you, talk to the, our amazing animation director, um, James Strauss, about it, and then to kind of pitch, pitch them and with some step through blocking. And then that was kind of it. There wasn't a huge amount of ability to do experiment experimentation because of how slow the creative animation process was 25 years ago. Now an animator can block something in really, really quickly, show it to me, and I'll say, yeah, no, why don't you try this? I mean, I see where you're going with that, but it'd be, let's push it a little bit more, and they can turn it around in an hour, and they show it to me again. And, and so there's more collaboration there, there's more freedom, and I think there's more um, energy that comes from that process. The animator gets engaged and realizes, I didn't spend four days blocking this in. I spent four hours blocking this in, and now I can build or try something different all, once again, using that idea of you've got five days to animate the shot, where how are you gonna use your five days? Yeah. Tell me, are you still running your animation teams 
what I'd say is, I guess I'm going to use the word traditionally, as in you like to have everyone in a room for dailies and you like to have that collective response? Or is that like now just so much a case that everybody's just viewing off monitors because the monitors are so good and they're so big and, you know. Yeah. Well, um, pre-COVID, I liked to have everybody, we still use the term dailies, but I don't do them every day. Okay. Um, I tend to do them every second day and I cap them at one hour. And, the, and I do like to have everyone in the biggest theater we have available at where I am. So that we're seeing the work big because we tend to work on big movies and I wanna believe that we're all gonna be back in the theaters and we're gonna see them on big screens. So being able to see something on, even on a decent sized monitor we tend to have these days, you're kind of tricking yourself, I believe you're tricking yourself uh, as a supervisor because when you see it 60 feet across, it's a lot, you know, a subtle movement in an eye can look on a monitor, can suddenly look too big on a big screen. So that's the benefit of that. The other benefit of having everyone in the same room is that I can give high level general notes. So I'll watch all the work that's been submitted for the dailies. Uh, we'll talk about how it's flowing. I can highlight the shots that I think or I know that the director is responding to, or if I see a new piece of animation and I say, oh, this is fantastic. Everybody, this, this, what this person's done with this facial is, is exactly what we're after. So that I don't have to say that to 40, 60, some of my teams are 80 animators. So being able to get that general knowledge out is really important. We then do afternoon rounds for the people who want it. And I can do screen monitor reviews as, as well. Certainly in COVID, we've only been able to do reviews on the monitors and it does work, but I, I worry about the, show, the shows that are gonna go to the big screen. Um, and I normally ask people about directors because that sounds like I'm just after kind of, you know, entertainment tonight trivia, but <laughs> I will now ask you about directors, but only in terms of process. I know that, uh, that uh, George Miller is particularly good at where your eye is on the screen. I'm yes. wondering if you found that when working, because like in the Mad Max films, obviously you didn't do, um, he, like he's a taskmaster of filming and knowing how they're going to cut together because where your eye is on a big screen is actually a huge thing. Like on an iPhone, it makes no difference whatsoever. No. But it, he's, he really crafts his films with the audience sitting in a cinema almost implicitly. And I don't know if you found that and, and whether you found that's common amongst the directors you've worked with or... Uh, well, you're absolutely right about George Miller. He is uh, he is so precisely tuned to that. Um, so I learned a great deal from him about that. And the editor uh, he had on, on Happy Feet 2, Christian Gazol, same thing uh, in terms of eye track across the cut. So where do you want the audience looking on this shot? And where what what's the action that you're cutting to? And where do you want their eye? Do you want their eye it to be, you know, it's in the same spot or do you want to force them to jump to a different spot and therefore subconsciously change the, the audience's feeling of, of, you know, are, are they feeling agitated? Are they feeling off, off balance? Are they feeling they're in this smooth or George sees this creaminess of the cut? Um, uh, so that was something that I, I knew about from film school, but I hadn't really, it hadn't come to the front as much as it did like it did when I was working with George Miller. I think all directors, whether they feel it subconsciously or consciously, are all thinking about it at some level. And certainly all of their editors are absolutely thinking about it, uh, whether they're articulating it or not. 
they definitely are. And if for people who are listening, you know, people like Walter Murch, if you read Walter's, what Walter talks about in terms of his editing, both picture editing and sound editing, it's fascinating in terms of there's a there's an editor who absolutely is playing with the audience with the way that he cuts both sound and picture together. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and to that end, and of course we touched on this earlier, but to that end, as an animation tool, I wonder if you could talk about um, blocking and and I don't mean just cinematically like the, the cool shot that looks like it's from the Western, but um, I remember hearing a director talk, I can't actually remember which, a director of photography, I should say, talk about a shot, but it was a relatively nothing shot to every respect. It was a guy in a room with another guy, but he surprised him by reacting, like the guy hit a nerve and the cinematographer said, oh, um, he throws him up against the wall. So I didn't pan properly because he was so surprised that he was being thrown up at the wall that I accentuated that by them sort of going half out of shot as if I, as a cinematographer, didn't know what was going to happen, right? Yeah. And I was just sort of dumbfounded because I'm like watching this thinking, well, I wouldn't have done that. I'd have panned the camera because I knew they were going to hit the wall, right? Because yeah. I'm not a good cinematographer. Um, <laughs> but but that is actually an animation tool in your world of fully animated features, right? And I'm wondering, yeah. do you ever sort of get that as a supervisor where you're sort of saying to the, um, the character animator slash actor, hey, you're doing a great job with this character here, but I think I can help you if we play with the camera now versus... Yeah versus the other. Yeah, yes, and uh, we do think about this all the time and you just made you remember um, on the, one of the first Star Wars prequels, uh, I was talking to George Lucas, we had, they framed it up and there was a, a digital character partly in the shot and partly out of the shot. And I, and I said, well, George, can we just, you know, can we just pan over or go wider? And he said, no. And I said, well, but we can't see this character. He said, if it was a real person, I wouldn't have panned over because they're not the important part of the shot. But I want him there so that he just, it's as we shot it, it's as if we shot it on the day and that digital character was really there. That's how I would have shot it and that's how we're going to do it. And I'm like, suddenly I was like, right, of course. I wanted our digital characters to be treated as equals to the live action characters. And he was treating them in terms of compositing, you know, composition yeah. and editing. So yes, there have been many times about the, smart camera person. We did it in uh, Peter Rabbit as well. Will Gluck was, the director was sensitive to that. So there are times when Peter breaks frames, certainly in the fight sequence that he has with young Mr. McGregor, there are moments there that they shot it as if they, was, they were both there in the scene at the same time. And Peter's out of focus, or he's only partly in the scene, or he comes in and he goes out. But I think it really helps with the realism of that moment, that, that sequence, because Peter was treated as if he was really there on the day. You saw that transition as well from when we used to have a digital camera as a nodal point pivoted perfect camera to, hey, we're going to sort of move the camera off its own little tripod axis. So if it turns, its nodal point moves. And, and there was a lot of that kind of, which seems obvious looking back, but when those things were first started being introduced, and I give credit to Pixar and all sorts of people for doing it, it was mm. like, wow, that that suddenly looks, that looks ridiculously better. Yeah. Um, it must have, can you remember the seeing that sort of, or seeing that transition, or were you always hunting that yourself? Um, I wasn't hunting myself, but I certainly appreciated it when it showed up. And it just was one of those things where it was like, of course, we should have been talking to real cinematographers. And so, you know, studios like DreamWorks hired Roger Deakins to, to be a, a camera, you know, consultant or the DOP for those um, 
And Rob, I've got to tell you, when they first started doing that, I thought it was a publicity stunt. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I swear to God, I did. I was like, I'm not going to be yeah. suckered by this. Like, that's silly. I know how these things really work. There's no point having a real DOP there. And you are so right. I was yeah. so wrong. No, I was, uh, you, uh, as someone who, who loves a beautifully shot and edited film, it was, it was a huge step up. And it just was one of those things where you're like, right, of course. Um, so, you know, the films that Roger and he's, he's been in, you know, semi-regularly doing, uh, doing this for animated features, I, I think it inspired a whole generation of digital cinematographers who started to truly go back to either their film school days or their love of cinema and started saying, okay, well, what is it about the language of camera movement, a camera on a dolly, a camera on a technocrane, a camera being handheld? And we started internally talking at the various companies I worked at about, okay, our camera rig, our digital camera rig, what, you know, what are we doing with our lenses and what are we doing with how it can move? Because sadly, and so many of us did it, a digital camera can do anything in any way. And because of that, it, it doesn't look like a real camera. And, it, and it, for, it, it, I find it really, really hard to see stuff where they're not being true to the weight of a camera. You can't just suddenly accelerate from zero to 100 kilometers an hour with a camera. It's gotta, there's got to be a little bit of an ease up as it goes, right? Or yeah. an overshoot. And yeah. if you really analyze live action, you will see what that cameraman you're talking about is like, well, no, I chose not to pan with them because he knew what was going to happen. But on the day, you know, or in the moment, that camera person shouldn't have known what was going to happen. Yes. And therefore you get is this. So the difference between between a rehearsed performance and capturing a trio, a, a truth of an actual moment, right? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Like if you watch documentary footage, yeah. most of that stuff, if it's happening real, you're getting a real camera. You're yeah. getting a real, you know, the camera is out of focus and it moves and it bumps and it and it, they're trying to follow whatever their action they're following, but they're, they, it hasn't been rehearsed, so they don't know what's going to happen. It's so interesting that visual authenticity that you know for back in the day was whether or not I can get the uh, you know specular highlights and the subsurface scattering to be right. And visual yeah. authenticity today is, as you say, like much more about does the digital camera have weight, which you know we weren't even thinking about back in the day. Yeah, no, we weren't thinking about it, and thankfully we are now. Yeah, well, it, things evolve. Hey, um, it must be uh, fun to be back at ILM, like. Uh, You've, you're obviously, I should point this out, um, Sydney cider and thus able yeah. to join ILM Sydney, right? That's right. Yeah. So for the people who don't know, I was previously at ILM from 1993 to 2005. Uh, and I left ILM to uh, George Lucas's request to go up to Lucasfilm Animation at Skywalker to help him set up first for the Clone Wars TV show, but for the long-term uh, goal of, of desire he had to make animated features, which I was thrilled about. And then I was there for a couple of years and it looked like we weren't going to be making features. So I headed off on my animated feature journey, which took me, uh, brought me to Sydney, Australia, where I've been living for 12 years. And I had three with George Miller uh, creating the Happy Feet 2. And then a wonderful nine years with uh, Animal Logic. We're really proud of what the company was able to produce. We did Lego films. We did the Peter Abbott films. Um, and currently they're finishing up super pets and um they've got a couple other films in production uh it was thrilling but to, uh, thrilling to be there and see the growth but the chance to head back home to ilm a place that i only left because i wanted to work on animated features um and ilm sydney is going to be working on animated features so um i'm really excited 
Yeah, yeah. There is such a, uh, I mean, look, you know, I'm a huge fan of animal, obviously, and uh, and animal logic, and they've been part of uh, my film, uh, I don't know, perspective since they, they started. But that being said, there's also such tremendous uh, cinematic history at ILM that uh, it's interesting. But I, I guess, um, you know, like, with all things like uh things just move on and and change and evolve and that's not to say that that's bad uh you know change is the only constant right well exactly you know um i think for anyone you just want to be creatively challenged and and you want to be for where i am in my career the, a chance to get back to some with some of my oldest friends and colleagues at ilm and to and to work on you know the the huge slate of work they've they've got through Lucasfilm and Disney Plus and and, and everything else they're developing there. It, it was just a, something that suddenly became an opportunity presented itself, and I was like, wow, I hadn't even thought that I would get back to ILM, and so a chance to 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 be reconnected with those people on some very exciting work is it was just something that's like, well, life is short, and I want to do that. Yeah, you bet, and we're really glad to have you still in Sydney. Hey, I'm I, I'm not a pry on any projects, but um. But did I just take it from what you just said? And again, not not about specific projects, but that you're still going to be focused on animated work rather than animation in visual effects. Is that what I just heard you say? I've just started at, at ILM Sydney, and I, we're still working out exactly how I can best be used. Uh, ILM obviously has a long, long history of working on big visual effects movies. Sydney and the other uh, four studios will be continuing to work on that. There's the, now the episodic work we see coming through Lucasfilm, like things like The Mandalorian. Uh, and now there's this new, you know, desire to work on animated features. I think I'm going to be kind of across everything until the right project or projects present themselves and they say, look, Rob, we'd love you to focus on this. So I, I'm not actually on a project right now. I'm really just coming You're up. You're still, still being inducted with your, your, intro, your induction and, you know, where's the... Uh... Where's the photocopying machine? Hey, um, let me ask you this though. Like the we touched on very, very briefly earlier, television. And I just want to flip back on that because I think one of the lovely things about episodic television these days is that like if you look at a super high budget thing like ER back in the day, they were having yeah. to crank out 22 eps a season for 15 seasons, right? Um, if you look at something by comparison that's uh, and again, I'm not talking about ILM specifically or or any particular project, but just in yeah. general, you yeah. could have an eight show Marvel show, right? Which is yeah. a full season. It's only eight eps, um, which is nothing compared to the 22. And also the gaps between the seasons can be, you know, a bit more flexible. The streamers yeah. have have changed that in the the and also, you know, the budgets themselves are bigger. The production and the tools are so much uh similar it, it's um it's very much changed what you know i mean i would never have thought someone like you would be looking at a tv project 20 years ago because it just wasn't viable right um, oh same here yeah. yeah but they but the industry has changed really uh in, in amazing ways but you also said that you have a first love of seeing things on the big screen so uh, are they in conflict or are you happy with both they're not in conflict anymore. I, I think you're absolutely right. If I go back to sort of myself 20 years ago, I wouldn't have thought that I would be potentially working on television shows. I did work on Captain Power and the Soldier of the Future way back in 1987. That was combining computer animation and live action uh, as a first uh, back then. And look, but look, nowadays, I mean, Star Trek look, The Next Generation, and there, there were great TV shows that did great visual effects work. I'm not saying that there, there weren't. It's just it was a yeah. different you know, world. No, but I think if you look at things like Game of Thrones, 
or yeah. or now look at the brand new foundation uh, work. I mean, it's just it's feature film quality epic. You're able to tell feature films quality work over a much longer. You know, movies are you know ninety minutes long. These TV series, depending on how many episodes there are in a season or seasons, you filmmakers and and creative uh, producers can tell very long stories now and but do them at a high level plus the tv i have now is a nice big tv and i can sit with my you know surround headphones or speakers and i can have a cinematic experience in my home i love going to theater because of the communal uh watching a big you know big film together yep. on a big screen uh you know we've got the cinema down the street here that i can't wait to open on monday uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I, I've uh, bought tickets to uh, the to, to next week's opening here in Sydney uh, with the latest Marvel film myself. Like, yeah, that's it, it is. I certainly I agree with you, like going to the minimum. But also I think the other thing that's really helped a lot in those television uh, shows is because of digital cinematography combined with things like Dolby Vision, the, yes. the HDR higher dynamic range capabilities of the screens are giving us a much more vibrant, much more richer world. And if you watch your screen properly without kind of lots of incidental light and stuff. Yeah. As you say, with the, with the Dolby sound and stuff, you're getting a, a very rich uh, visual image. Oh, I think the Dolby Atmos that, you know, it's just, it, it's amazing. And the Dolby vision, uh, it's, just, I'm, and I turn off all the, the things you shouldn't have on all the blending and stuff like that. And you get it, you get it. Yeah. And I watch it night and it's, and it's dark and it's, it's, it's gorgeous. Yeah. To that end, and just in finishing up, has there ever been, because I should have asked you this ages ago, but I skipped over the question, so I'm just going to come back to it. Has there ever been an occasion, like I was talking about before, where you, know, you as an animation director, have uh, affected things because of the camera, that you've done the same thing with audio, that you've, because I know like the original animation of Luxo Jr. Um, yeah. that was done, it was like he hits the top of the ball when it pops, and it just stood, and the animator's like, are you insane? It's just there forever. And he goes, no, 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 no. Time for audio. Trust me, the audio um, guys need that. Do you step in often? Because I mean, you know, you got temp audio normally when you're when you're working. Do you have occasions when the audio you've gone? Wait, wait, guys, this isn't us. This is audio. Leave it, leave it alone. Yeah, there's been many times when I have not had the sound effects available to me to know what the creatures are going to sound like or move like, and I found that I I'm not comfortable because I wish I'd had the sound. So an example would be. Um, the arena battle in Attack of the Clones. Um, I didn't know what those creatures were going to sound like. And I didn't hear it until I, until I went to the final mix. And I wish I'd known because I would have probably changed some things. There were other times that, yes, I have asked, usually it's the editors, my, my conduit into the sound crew. Can I get a sound effect here? Even if it's a temporary one. So I know the timing of something. Is the sound, your example of the ball is perfect. Is this a long sound or a short sound or a sharp sound or, or a dull sound? What are we thinking sound-wise? Because it will inform myself and the animators of how we want, what's the comedic timing on that? Or what's the, what's the emotional hold on that? If, if the, especially if a character is listening to something and it's taking them back into a memory, what does it sound like? I want to know what that sounds like. I want to know what it feels like so that I can help the, the performance. Well, I've got to say, like, uh, we could keep talking for hours, but we're, we're out of time. But, Rob, it's been terrific uh, being able to chat with you. I'm so looking forward to whatever it is that you're going to do uh, at ILM. Um, but also super glad that you're going to stay in Sydney, my friend. So thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here.
Thanks, guys, for that. Over the years, Rob has been a good friend of Guy and always generous with his time, sharing his insights from the various projects he's been working on. And we look forward to hearing about his projects in the future at ILM. As always, please feel free to contact us with any questions or comments about this podcast or anything else FX Guide related. You can do that by scrolling down to the bottom of any page at the website, click the contact link, fill out the form, and an email will be sent to both Mike and myself. You can always follow us on our social, social channels as well. Uh, on the homepage of the site, there's a little banner and you can see our links to Twitter, uh, Facebook, as well as Instagram. But that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen, and we look forward to sharing our next FX Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.